Let's get started in the Word. Um, tonight is it on our series in the church. I uh, finally felt a, a red light uh, on, on where we have went with this, but it happened strangely for me. Um, did not have any idea what we were going to do next. I don't like to just make stuff up. I know we would, it would be blessed to do anything. We could just pick a spot in the Bible and go, let's work on that, and we'd have fun. But I don't like to do that. I like to have something sort of burning, some, something that it pushes me on, it kind of excites me, like it's pulling me. Um, all of the studies that we've done before this have done that, even up to this one. There's been something in there that was calling me, like, let's get some of this out if it takes two weeks or if it takes two years, let's do that. And so I've been waiting for that sound. Um, this message happened because I read Ephesians 3, where the Apostle Paul talked about one of the roles of the church, one of the things the church is supposed to do, realizing that I had not went down that road with you. We've done all this work on the church. And I hit that verse and went, ah, that's one we need to do. So then it became easy. Okay, Tuesday night, that's what we're going to do. And as that started to unfold, uh, I, I realized that I was seeing a red light in my spirit about this is the end and here comes your new beginning. And so we're going to go out of this and, and sort of dovetail right into another series. And I'll lay that out for you as we end tonight. It's not a book, um, but it is a thought and one that I'm very excited about unpacking for a little while with you. I don't know, maybe it takes two weeks, three weeks, two months, three months, I don't know, but we'll, we'll see. Um, I think it'll kind of reveal itself as we work through tonight. My title tonight is, and this is in the church. So for me, all of these have been the church and then the title. And so for me, it's the church to the principalities and powers. That's actually a full quote without the colon. Paul doesn't put the colon in there grammatically. I did because this whole series has been the church and I've been adding a subtitle onto every one of these. But Paul uses this phrase, the church to the principalities and powers, as I'm pulling it direct from the New King James Version. I want to read that. Let's start and just read directly from Paul's instruction what, what some of your Bibles might call the purpose of the mystery. This is one of those mystery passages. Paul has several of these. He has the mystery that had been shut up from the beginning, but it has been revealed unto us, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's his Colossians mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He has his marriage mystery in Ephesians 5 where he says, um, As it was written, man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. He goes, this is a mystery, but has been revealed that it is Christ and his church. There's a mystery. Here's another one. And I, for purposes of our study, I think it's a great landing spot because it propels us forward to go do something. Preaching and teaching is informative and fun as far as I'm concerned. I actually love preaching and teaching, not just Bible teaching. I, I'm, I love all kinds of it, but it's fun to me. It's informative to me, but it's useless if there's no application. So if you get to the end of a lesson and all you had was information, that's one thing. But when you come into the meeting of God's people, you want to leave with a promise. I heard an old time preacher one time say, never preach a sermon where you don't end on a promise. I thought that was pretty good advice. That way you at least walk out of the building with something to think about, something you know you can hold on to that's more than information. And so this is the way to end the series on the church is to end with promise. Like what, is, what do we do going forward if all we've ever thought is go save people and build churches? Well, uh, 
that's not what we're doing here. So maybe we should stop having meetings. You know, I mean, if, if it's all about building a building or building a ministry or building a structure or building something to leave your kids. Um, but there's got to be something more. And, I, and I, we don't see that attitude among the early church, not in the building mode. So what is it that they want to land on? Ephesians chapter 3, let's read verses 8 to 12, and we're going to work a little bit of this as we go, but we're going to save some of it to break down um, in just a moment. To me, this is Paul writing to Ephesus, to me, who am less than least of all the saints, this grace was given. That's an unusually humble moment for Paul in this passage. Paul struggles a little bit with the idea that he's the least of the saints. He Actually, his Galatians letter, kind of the opposite. Um, but we'll take him for face value. He's in a good moment. Who am least, less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. If you're in an underlining mode, or at least a mental neon mode, like make something jump out in your mind, start there. What a phrase. The unsearchable riches of Christ. There's something about that phrase that jumps at me. So it's going to be one of our highlight moments. That Paul believed he was preaching a message of Christ with an unsearchable amount of riches, fathomless, bottomless amount of riches of Christ, and to make all, verse 9, and to make all see what is, and here comes our mystery, the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Christ Jesus. There's a little bit of question in biblical scholarship over whether or not there should be a period right here after the word all because mm, some of our earliest greek we don't have through christ jesus there i don't argue too much whether that's the case or not um, it does set us up for whether jesus the christ is there at creation I, I think john makes that pretty clear that he believes that's the way to say that i only throw that out there because it, it, it's in the world so i want you to know about it let's look at that mystery watch watch where he goes now verse 10 this is the verse this is why we land on this lesson tonight. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made. No, there's another neon moment for you. If we've got the unsearchable riches of Christ, put that up next to the manifold wisdom of God. Those are two amazing statements. The manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church. Here comes our role. What a preposition. By the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and we have access with confidence through faith in Him. Unfortunately, when we read this passage, we almost always land at the end. We, we concentrate on the fact that we have boldness and access. Hey, you, you can be bold in the Spirit and you have access to God. Those are great points. But we miss something very crucial on the way to the boldness and the access statement that ought to be emphasized, and that is that God gave the church a job. And according to verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God is in us and we are supposed to be making that wisdom known to the principalities and powers that live in the heavenly places. Now, why in the world does Paul assume that the job of the church is to make known the wisdom of God to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Seems like that ought to be God's job. If they're in heavenly places, he ought to be taking care of what's in the heavenly. Why is he leaving that to the role of the church? And also, why has no one told us this before? If the, because for most of us, the church is like a soul-saving station. It's supposed to be growing. It's supposed to be getting people to heaven. 
And according to Paul, the church has a responsibility to take the, the manifold wisdom of God and project that out onto the principalities and powers of this world. There's some sort of knowledge, the ecclesia, that's the called out ones, that's the word for church. There is some sort of knowledge that the church is supposed to have, that it is supposed to be sharing with the principalities and powers of this world, is supposed to be doing precisely that. Let's break these two down, these two neon spots first, all right? Unsearchable riches of Christ. I'm going to start here. I don't want to stay on either of them too long, but I don't want to miss them because there's just two nuggets of gold right there. You could do a series on Ephesians 3. One of your sermons would be the unsearchable riches of Christ. The other sermon would be the manifold wisdom of God before you even get to the mystery that is the church. And I didn't want to break it down and do that much, so we'll do this. Anexikniastos, a Greek word meaning that which cannot be traced out. There's a negative aspect in the front part of that word in the Greek, which is where we get the cannot. That cannot be traced out. That cannot be easily discerned. It cannot easily be copied. Whatever is there in the riches of Christ. Let me show you where this word is used elsewhere, because sometimes this is a good Bible study technique. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. If you're in a spot and you don't really get it, then you take that word, you go drop it in wherever you can find it elsewhere and go, what did it mean over here? If my context is cloudy, maybe I'm just not really getting what riches look like. What would it be like if you changed the context? Okay, let's do that. Romans 11, 32. God has committed them all to disobedience that he might have mercy on all. I want you to just forget 32 for a second, okay? It does not matter for purposes of this definition. I only put it up there because I want to show you the context of this definition, all right? Because this is a text I can't get out of my head, by the way. This is one I've been preaching. I just preached this at Jamie's church a few weeks ago, but look at 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. And right there is your Greek phrase from Ephesians 3. So once again, Paul puts something out ahead of us about God. God is unsearchable. His judgments are unsearchable. His ways can't be traced. You don't have a way to trace a pattern of God's judgments, a pattern of God's ways. You can't look at someone else and trace out how God would act based on how someone else is acting. It's impossible to do. God's ways, God's judgments are past finding out. This is the New Testament equivalent of the Old Testament text. His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And why? Because you know the context of that text is because he's merciful to who he wants to be merciful to. He'll forgive who he wants to forgive. We wouldn't, but he will. His ways are higher than our ways. I might not forgive you. His ways are higher than my ways. He'll forgive you. I might not have mercy on you, but his ways are higher than my ways. He will have mercy on you. Now, look at that context. God has committed all to disobedience so that he might have mercy on all. Every single human being has been imprisoned in something. Some can easily spot it as sin, filth, condemnation, guilt, degradation, abuse, molestation, pain, fear. Some of you can spot it in religion, 
and works and performance and effort and condemnation and the fear of a judgmental God. But you've been in a prison of something. You've been in a prison of your own works. You've been in a prison of your own mind. You've been in a prison of your parents' expectations, your pastor's destiny for you, your whatever. You, you, spend, you can spend all night listing the stuff we're in prison to. You've got one. Most of your life is trying to figure out how to get out of it, not trying to figure out what it is. If you haven't figured out what it is yet, well, it's time to wake up. Spot your imprisonment. The beauty of this is God committed all of us there. Paul would elaborate on that in the book of Galatians. He goes, we're all shut up under the law until faith could come in Jesus Christ. So even, he doesn't even let religious people off the hook. Because it's easy for us to go, those sinners are a bunch of slaves to sin. But Paul says, no, you've all been in prison under the law. So even your very performance becomes a prison. So because God commits us to disobedience, he might have mercy on all of us. I love this. It means that every single person qualifies for the mercy of God. Maybe you, maybe you guys are so well-versed in that that it, that's easy for you. But I want you to think about the implications of this. If everybody's been imprisoned so that God can have mercy on everybody, who misses out on the mercy of God? Nobody misses out. And what we might say is, yeah, but, because that's how we always approach this stuff. Yeah, but. You got to say this prayer, you got to do this thing, got to show God this, got to jump through this hoop, got to do what God says to do. Glad you said that, because Paul said, oh, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and his ways are way past tracing out. You're never going to be able to figure out why God can be so merciful to everybody. So don't try, because you can't trace God. He doesn't look like anybody you know. Man, that's good. He doesn't look like anybody you know. He doesn't have mercy like anybody you know. He has no peer. He has no equal. You can't, you can't come up with your statements of faith or your doctrines or your stuff and go, but here's what God ought to do. Paul goes, oh, the depth of his love. I think the O oh is his response to the rebuttal because he knows we're going to read, oh, God's committed all to, to, to disobedience so that everybody can mercy. Oh, I don't know about that. He goes, oh, but God is untraceable. And there's no way you can know what he's up to in regards to how merciful that he will be, how deep are his judgments, how deep are his riches. Take that thought and let's go back to the Ephesians 3 text. And here's verse 10. Here's the next one. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and the powers in heavenly places. You know by the subtitle that the real design of this message tonight is not the unsearchable riches of Christ. It is not the manifold wisdom of God. The real purpose of tonight's message is principalities and powers. But let's not skip this beautiful moment here. Polypokilos in the Greek, the much varied. Polypokilos actually never appears again exactly like this in the text. But the poikilos, the root word of, of polypokilos, does show up and it it is manifold as well in the English, which is a pretty weak translation. How it can be two different words in the Greek and the same word in the English doesn't make sense. But when it shows up again, it's better translated multicolored. But this is really the much varied. It's various in all of its ways. God's wisdom is much varied. So we're not simply talking about one area. We're not simply talking about one aspect. Paul presents the all-encompassing wisdom of God. 
everything about who God is, all wrapped up in one thing. And we know that one thing, of course, is Jesus. And then the church has a responsibility to take that much varied wisdom of God, that thing that we're learning about our Father, we are to take that and make it known to the principalities and to the powers in heavenly places. And this is where it gets fun as far as I'm concerned. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, I love that riches of Christ and manifold wisdom of God. You can see how excited I get. I don't think that we can trace out God's goodness. I don't think we can land on how appropriately loving that he is. I think we've shorted him. I think we've done a, I think I've done a shoddy job of preaching the gospel of God's love. You cannot overexpress the love of God. It is impossible. If God is love, then everything you do will come short of how loving that God is. So overdo it. Permission to overdo it with preaching the love of God and showering God's people, saint and sinner alike, with God's love. Let me say that again. Shower God's people, saint and sinner alike, with God's love because they are all God's people. They are His, and that is His love knows no bounds. You cannot trace Him. You don't get to stop at a certain point. Love all of it, but I really want to land on this principality and power bit. All right, because this jumped out at me. The, the ecclesia has a job. Ecclesia, church, called out ones, plural. It's what we are. When you walked into this space, I said this, I think we said this last week. I try to get Jesus in here really fast. We should probably open in prayer. I know there's reasons why you open in prayer. But, well, we should open in prayer if we feel like we should open in prayer. It's not as if God sets this structure up and goes, this is the way you got to open. But I get to Jesus quickly because two or three gather in his name. The Ecclesia is in the house. So we put his name in the midst of us quickly. Start talking about Jesus a lot so that our room becomes about Jesus. This room, we have a lot of fun. We talk about a lot of things. We enjoy one another's company. At the end of the day, what keeps us coming into the same room is Jesus. We know that Jesus will become the centerpiece of that conversation. Because we can, have center, we can have conversations about everything else anywhere else. But then in this, we become the ecclesia. So what is our role then? Because I love you, and you love me, and I like being around you, and you like being around me. That should be enough. Well, that's enough. That's what a church is all about. It's a really good place to start. It's way better than I hate you, and you hate me, and none of us like each other, and we're just trying to put up with each other. It's way better uh, to enjoy one another's company. But what is the role then? Well, if it's to proclaim the wisdom of God to the principalities and the powers of heavenly places, then let's start with understanding what that principality and power looks like, right? Because then we would know what we need to do. So we start there. The church is manifested to show the much varied wisdom of God to the principalities and powers. Simple point right out of the text. This point alone, if we didn't have anything else, this point should show us that principalities and powers are not angelic, demonic, spiritual structures in the way we've always thought of these fallen spiritual creations. I all cap in the way because they can be angelic, demonic, and spiritual structures, but I don't think they're in the way we think of angelic, demonic, and spiritual structures because we often think of these as sort of spiritual creations, these 
entities in the spirit realm that float around, that soar in the heavens, and that cause us to need a theology of sort of where did demons come from? And so then we got to figure out, are they the fallen spirits? Are they the spirits of disembodied sinners from a million years, a thousand years ago? Are they the disembodied souls of angels from, I've, I've had all these things taught, read them and taught them sometimes just out of ignorance because I didn't know anything else. Well, demons might be the, the spirit of a fallen angel from someplace long ago. I think that one point leads me to this thought, God surely needs no help convincing the cosmos of his wisdom. Why does he need the church to convince the flying around spirits of the wisdom of God? (laughs) Couldn't God, who puts himself in human flesh and goes to the cross, and if we agree with the text, actually defeats the powers of darkness at Calvary, actually beat them at Calvary, then what in the world does he need the church to convince those powers of darkness that are still floating around in the cosmos? What does he need the church to do his job for him for? This is putting an awful lot on the church to say you've got to go out here and convince the invisible that God exists. And if that's the case, then we probably should be in the demonic calling out business. I mean, if there's a demon out there, we probably ought to get them exposed and reveal to them the wisdom of God. And notice that Paul doesn't say that the church casts out those demons or shuts down those demons. He says that the church declares the manifold wisdom of God to the principalities and the powers. So let's just take a pause for a second. Here's all I ask. I don't ask you to throw all your demon information out. Just take a pause for a second and say, what if the principalities and the powers are not exactly fallen angelic beings that are floating around in the universe trying to find their judgment someday and God's going to get them down the road. Let's just for a moment consider that there might be something else at work. Let's start by letting the scriptures give us a little more information about the scriptures. Here's Paul again, Romans 8, 38. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers. There's our two right there. We're going to come back to them in a minute. Nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is another power text. This is incredible. This is one so strong. I've taken a break on the DDP, and I'm airing an audiobook that I never aired before because I'm just needing some breathing room. And I was reading this week and thought, forget the break and hit record and did a podcast on this because I needed to preach to somebody and get it out of my system. Just going through this one more time, let me start here. Watch the opposites. Paul's doing something on purpose here. So just follow the path of the narrative, okay? Death, life, simple, right? A little back and forth. Angels, principalities, and powers, kind of a good and evil. Okay, the angelic is obviously invisible, but does the bidding of the good. The principalities and the powers, some form of spiritualism, somewhere on par with the angelic, that does the bidding of the bad. Sounds like the demonic, wouldn't you say? No real good word, by the way, for the demonic in the Greek. Um, So we got to use whatever we can get. 
Nor things present, nor things to come. There's opposites. It's not today, it's tomorrow. Height, depth, and then Paul just throws everything else in there. And goes, oh, any other created thing, stuff I can't even think about. Any other created thing, none of it will be able to separate from the love of God. I just want to say this, just in case you wondered why I had to hit record and do a podcast on it. The one that's really got me is life and death. And that's the one right out of the blocks. Not even death can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. See, you got it too. Like you kind of swallowed it different. Kind of went down a little smoother. Because you've been wrestling with us on the concept of the love of God. And then sometimes once you just change your lenses, scripture changes. Like stuff pops that you didn't see before. So I've always known this was in the Bible, but I'm reading it through this week and go, neither life nor death can separate you from the love of Jesus. So the life you live doesn't separate you from the love of Jesus. The death you die doesn't separate you from the love of Jesus. And so I don't know what to do with that. I know what I want to do with it. I don't know exactly what I'm going to do with it, but I am pretty excited it's in the world. You know, I'm excited it's in my world. That's a freebie. That doesn't have anything to do with tonight. <laughs> Not that part. The part that does have to do with tonight is angels and principalities and powers. Because notice that Paul lays you another opposite, much like life and death. He even gives you the really obvious one up front, life and death, total opposites. But in a way, one is affected by the other. So the angelic and the principalities and the powers look quite similar. Maybe one is quite affected by the other. And the angelic is happening in the realm of the spirit. And so are the principalities and the powers happening in the realm of the spirit. So let's plug the idea of a principality and power into a practical way of dealing with it. Let's just think for a little while, okay? There is a spirituality, I put it in quotes, because it's not really, we don't think of it spiritually, but I want you to start for this reason, for this purpose tonight. There's a spirituality at the center of institutions. Ever hear of quote-unquote corporate culture? This is just an example. What's corporate culture? It's the culture of your business environment. This is the way we do things here. This is how we act. This is how we say. This is how we dress. This is how we respond. This is how we do business. It's not even got to be written down. It's just your corporate culture. Imagine that in the realm of, say, spirituality. We don't think in those terms. We think spiritual means demons and angels, God and the devil, heaven and hell. But maybe we ought to think spirituality in terms of the invisible because that's how Paul talked. And so that spirituality is the things that are just as real as the natural. You just can't see them the way you can see the natural. And so spirituality, think in terms of at the center of everything, is some form of spirituality. We know it because we sense it. And we feel it inside. We sense it in an organization. We sense it in a body of politic. We sense it in a sports team. We sense it in a church. We sense it at work. There's some form of spirit that rises up or that sort of reveres, uh, reveals itself. It's a form of discernment of spirits. And what we're discerning is not flying demons. What we're discerning is the fallen nature of political, economic, and cultural institutions. And I think this is why the New Testament makes it rather clear that the demonic always needed a host 
you'll recall in the New Testament, either a man or a group of pigs, or when you get to the book of Revelation, it needed some form of institution. Empire brings the beast by the end of the book of Revelation. What's happening in the New Testament, I don't think is that God's trying to show you there are disembodied demons floating around just looking for people to land on. But rather, that which is in the spiritual spirit can't manifest itself through anything other than the natural structures. But if it can get into the natural structure, it can show its evil. It can show what it is, and nothing can hide. It actually begins to sort of morph into whatever it takes possession of. And I think that is the idea of the principality and the power. Let's think about one more thing. There is something distinctive about the way the Ecclesia, we're just working our way into this Ephesians text for a moment. Something distinctive about the way the Ecclesia conduct itself, that's the church, in the face of these systems. And how we conduct ourselves in the face of those systems reveals the wisdom and the plan and the nature of God. And I hope you can see that this is my attempt to answer the problem I presented to you earlier. Why does God need the church? Surely God is big enough. If he defeated the devil at the cross, he's big enough to go ahead and show all of the cosmos his power. How is the church going to show the cosmos his power? Maybe it's because the church isn't showing invisible spirits his power. The church is showing the very visible powers of this world. The manifold wisdom of God by the way we live in front of the powers of this world. And that will change how you read the book of Revelation. Because then it is a message to the church to watch out for the beast. Not some guy that rises up in the Middle East in the year 2050 with a certain skin tone and signing peace trees with Israel, but rather the spirit behind an institution that vaults itself against the slain lamb, that asks for your allegiance, that asks for your loyalty, that offers something to you in return. And that becomes the only definable enemy of the church. And the church then picks up her role, her responsibility of revealing to that power the manifold wisdom of God. And she can't do it alone. We're not asked to do this individually. We're asked to do this corporately. We're asked to do this as the church. I'd like to do something I rarely do tonight, and that is give you a quote from someone else. And I do this whenever I come across something too powerful. It's too good. I want to say it myself and act like it's all me, but I'm not going to do that. I, I recently have been reading The Powers That Be by Walter Wink. I want to go ahead and say, if you want an insight into what I think, my opinion, this is not thus saith the Lord, my opinion, the end-all argument to the demonic and the spiritual, it's Walter Wink's The Powers That Be. I've searched my entire life to try and land on the best definition I can of the demonic and the angelic, and the spiritual wickedness in high places and the principalities and powers. And, and I wasn't a page into Walter Wink and my heart started, it started singing the song I've been waiting to hear. And I, I have to be careful saying that stuff on camera because then people think you're giving an endorsement for every single thing that's in a book. That is not the case on anything you will ever read, okay? 
you never are giving an endorsement of every single thing you read. So you buy this and you read it, you go, oh, he thinks that, okay. That, you know, ask me, I don't know. Maybe I do, maybe I don't, that's not my point. The point is a lot of this moved me so powerfully and I, there was a couple of paragraphs that helped say this in a way, they're not the end all paragraphs because you can't do that with a book in, in two paragraphs, but I, I wanna just read them for you, okay? And you can take them or leave them, but this says something that I can't, can't say on my own. Walter Wink, The Powers That Be. Some first century Jews and Christians perceived in the Roman Empire a demonic spirituality which they called Satan or the dragon of Revelation 12. But they encountered this spirit in the actual institutional forms of Roman life manifested itself like legions, governors, crucifixions, payment of tribute, Roman sacred emblems and standards, and so forth. Or by the time you get to Revelation 13, the beast. The spirit that they perceived existed right at the heart of the empire, but their worldview equipped them to discern that spirit only by intuiting it and then projecting it out in visionary form as if it were a spiritual being residing in heaven, but representing Rome and the heavenly council. And that's what the book of Revelation looks like. These spiritual beasts that represent institutional demonic activity. And the first century church was loaded with that kind of imagery. It's how they thought about the principalities and the powers. It's how they wrote about them and it's how they projected them. That's great. But then this, I thought, helps even more. In the ancient worldview where earthly and heavenly reality were inextricably united, this view of the powers worked effectively. But for many modern Westerners, it's impossible to maintain that worldview. Instead, fundamentalists treat the powers as actual demonic beings in the air, largely divorced from their manifestations in the physical or the political world. And secularists deny that the spiritual dimension even exists. And that's sort of where we're trapped. So you got those that go, that stuff's not even real. You guys are stupid. The spirit realm's not a real thing. And then we're sort of left with the rest of us going, oh yeah, it is. But hey, they're not manifested in stuff. They're actual demons. That's how we preach it. They don't manifest in things. They're actual spirits that fly around in the world and they get into your house through movies and sex and dragons and games and, and, uh, and, and stuff. And then when they get in, they don't leave and they rattle your pots and your pans. And if you let them, they'll even get inside your body because that's where they really want to be is back at home in the body they lost. And we come up with these bizarre theologies. But it's the only way we know how to classify the demonic Part of that might be because we've removed from that early idea that what was going on in the realm of the spirit were things that were influenced in the spiritual and then represented through these other institutions. And so we don't see the demonic in institutions. We see the demonic in people. And the early church flipped that. This is why Paul doesn't run around talking about casting out devils from people. And I know we have the Gospels that have Jesus casting out devils. And it's, it would be proper to investigate that at another moment. as to say what might be happening here if I changed my lens. Okay, let's just stay there. For, we'll just leave that there for a moment. If I were to change my lens, what might be happening? We'll leave that alone. What we do see 
is Paul believing that the church was standing up against principalities and powers, some sort of evil that manifested itself in a way, not through the demonic stuff as much as institutions that had lost their way. Things that had the power to do good, but that had slipped and were doing evil. After our Ephesians 3, you get to Ephesians 6, where Paul makes this statement, and I think it's a build-up statement from where we were. Verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. They may be able to stand against the tricks of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Our battle is not against through the realm of natural weaponry. Fists and swords is not how we fight. We actually wrestle against principalities, powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Familiar sound. How we read that is often that we are battling against high-powered demons who are defeated through prayer, through fasting, through casting out. High-powered demons who are defeated through asceticism or boycotts. Some way we choke them off. Um, and we cast them out in a very literal realm. I rebuke that spirit. I cast that off. I cast that out. But if Paul is presenting to us the idea that the forces of this world in a fallen state are presenting us with an opportunity to do things, and I think this is the biblical narrative, to do things the way of Cain, to get back at Cain through the blood of Abel, to fight back, to use the sword, to use violence, to respond in the way that the world does, then our weaponry moves into the realm of flesh and blood and moves out of the realm of the spirit where it belongs. And we don't realize what we're laying down in that moment. And so Paul goes on to say this, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. I stop here because I'm not trying to go back into the whole armor of God. I want you to notice Paul's definition of what it means to stand there. Paul does not present the image of mere survival. Paul does not tell you to roll over in the faces of the powers and the principalities. He tells you to stand your ground and refuse to flee. Having done all to stand, do what? Stand. Because we do not look at evil and run... And we do not look at evil and lay down and say, roll right over us. That's not the answer to what's going on in the principalities and powers of the world. We don't submit. We just refuse to use the equipment of the enemy. We don't submit. We just refuse to fight their way. We have to use only what is ours, not what is theirs. Their ways and their means do not work for us. Jesus said in Matthew 5.39, remember this from the Sermon on the Mount? Don't resist an evil person. A more accurate reading is, don't react violently against the one who is evil. In other words, we're not talking about non-resistance. 
We're talking about nonviolent resistance. We resist evil. We don't roll over in the face of evil. We just don't pick up evil's equipment. It's the third way. Have you heard of fight or flight? The church doesn't get to pick either. That's the system of the world. The church has to go a different route. The church has to follow Jesus to the cross. The church has to step into the only victory the world has ever actually seen against the powers of darkness. Jesus offered it. He slid it forward to the world. And what'd they do to him? They crushed him. It looks like a defeat. See, we got you too. We're disappointed at the cross for the most part. I read an old comic book today, found it online. Cheesy as all get out, but still spoke the ideology of our disappointment with the cross. The gods descended from Mount Olympus in this comic book. Pretty well written, pretty well drawn. And all of the gods come down to Calvary. And Jesus is dying on the cross. And the gods, these Greek gods, there's Zeus and Hera and all these, it's kind of funny, are all talking about why he would do this for these unworthy people. And they begin to mock him and challenge him as he's hanging on the cross. And the comic artist just couldn't resist. Jesus takes his hands and pulls them, pops them off the end of the nail. Pulls his other hand and pops it off the end of the nail. And reaches down and pulls his feet from the cross. And steps off the cross and one by one defeats all of the gods of the heavens. All the way down to Zeus himself. And you can feel the comic writer and the excitement of this vengeance. Jesus' big six pack. He's punching Zeus. You know, he's winning. Jesus Christ defeats uh, you know, here comes Poseidon with his trident and Jesus be. And I thought, we are so disappointed in the way Jesus told us to win that if we could retell the story, he pulls himself from the cross and he annihilates his enemies because it's the only way we know to get true justice is when all else fails, use violence. Jesus shoves in front of the world a third way. And this is why our next series, The Way of the Cross, becomes the equipment of the church. It is all the church has, is the crucified way of their Savior, the third way, that doesn't acquiesce to fight or flight. And don't get too excited. It is foolishness and a stumbling block. Paul knew it. I'll tell you straight up from the beginning, it's the foolish way. It's an embarrassing way. And Paul said, God forbid that I should glory in anything but the cross of Christ. I'm excited to redig because I felt when the Holy Spirit spoke that into me, there are some things about the cross that we're going to get to uncover that we've only maybe thought we understood. 
In the next several weeks, we will pick up the equipment that the church gets to use to show to the principalities and the powers of this world the manifold wisdom of God. And I'm not just talking, I'm not talking about just some retelling of the whole armor of God story. I mean, we go back to our source, our way and our means. God hanging between heaven and earth. What a moment. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for, for all of these moments tonight. Thank you for the that which cannot be traced about the riches of Christ. For the multivaried, multicolored wisdom of God. And the fact that the ecclesia, the called out ones, have the mystery in this hour to reveal those things to the principalities and powers of this world. Lord, we've put some questions and some thoughts out there tonight, some stuff worth wrestling with. Whether we land in the right spot or not, Father, is really part of our journey. But what I think we can all see is that our only hope is to go meet you at Calvary and take the one who gave us this instruction, that gave us this rule, and follow him into that death to see what lies on the other side in that resurrection. And over these next few weeks, Father, guide our path as we mine out the truths of your cross. In Jesus' name we pray.